Mani, good evening, Dimalang, and welcome to the Private Property Podcast. I'm your host, Uzaman Dungwa Kumalo. It's a Monday edition of the Private Property Podcast, and it's always a pleasure to have you join us on the Private Property Podcast. It is a Monday with kickstarting things, and of course, looking forward to an incredible week in property. And talking about an incredible week in property, some of what you can look forward to this week. Of course, it is a Private Property Podcast daily on your screens at 7 p.m. and every Tuesday and Thursdays, Umbali Noko brings you the Farming Podcast at 8pm. And on Wednesdays, Esti Klaassen brings you the First Time Home Buyers Show at 8pm. And over the weekend, Chad brings you the Home Shoppers Show where you get to, to get a snapshot of some of the best estates <coughs> that the country has on offer. So that's some of what you can look forward to right here on the private property social media platforms. We absolutely love hearing from you. So do show us some love down here below. Of course, let your friends and family know that you are watching the private property podcast. And to kickstart, or even before we kickstart uh, you know, this evening's com- uh, conversation, which I'm very excited about because it's quite a hot topic. And, and I'm very keen to also hear some of your views at home about this one. Before we kick start that, we are on week three of our Sherlock Holmes competition. So we've already had two winners who've walked away with that 5,000 Rand voucher. And we're still going to be at it for the next 10 weeks. And all you have to do to stand a chance of walking away with that 5,000 Rand voucher is to solve the riddle. And of course, you also stand a chance of winning that uh, grand mystery uh, prize. And ri- this week's riddle, rather, is, um, and I see it's also already on our screens, it is where the dolphins play and Zimbabwe and Bali meet. Lies an avenue of palms, four corners to rest your seat. So that's the riddle for the third week of our Sherlock Holmes competition. So do make sure that you go to www.privateproperty.co.za. We want to see if you can crack the riddle and be one of our winners later on this week. While we are on social media, whether you're watching us on YouTube or on Facebook, you can also follow myself on at Zamadunga underscore K. And we're getting, you know, this topic is one that I love. And we couldn't have gotten anybody else to talk about it um, than my guest. He needs no introduction. We've had him before on the show last year. He was one of our first guests. I mean, he was uh, one of the two guests that we had on episode one last year. So, of course, we have to bring him back in. Uh, that is, of course, Zakele Mieza, who is the founder of Bus Stop Properties. Zakele, good evening and thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hi, Zama. How are you and doing? Then, Always nice to be here. It's nearly one year to the day since we had you for the first time. I mean, we started, then it was the 30th of March. Um, we'll probably see if we can plan something uh, around the anniversary and definitely rope you in. And this evening with Zach, we're going to be looking at hot tips on how to get the most out of your student accommodation investment. And one of the big things that I, I actually want Zach and I to even go through is I'll say the future of um, student accommodation as an investment vehicle. We know that historically, certainly in the last uh, few years, you get very high yields. One of the things that you know happened with COVID is a lot of landlords uh, were very hard hit, especially landlords who were uh, servicing the student accommodation space. And with a lot of them now feeling a bit wary, wondering if universities are just going to almost go full on digital and there won't be a need for student accommodation. We know that the figures, um, we'll say pre-COVID figures, were that there was a shortage of beds and quite a lot of them. And the 
the institutions themselves did not have capacity to fill all those beds. And so it really was one of those lucrative markets that you could go into um, because it's just a, sh a shortage. And every single year we see it all the time, students find themselves stranded in different parts of the country uh, because they, there wasn't enough space at risk. So now that we've seen almost a full academic cal calendar being conducted online with so many students working from home, it, it, it certainly does beg the question of where student accommodation as an investment vehicle is headed. And, and I want us to talk about that, Zach, before we even get to some of the tips of then how you go about maximizing, um, you know, your investment. And, and maybe let's go into it, right, Zach, because I've had so many conversations with different landlords who do have student accommodation places and some of them were bleeding, right? And some of them were able to either still have their same tenants who said, look, home is actually not conducive for me to live there. So in as much as we're doing online school, I still actually need a place to stay. And others were, you know, changed it from student accommodation, put in young professionals or a family. Um, so they took a knock in terms of the amount of money they would typically collect when, you know, obviously students stay there, but they were still able to collect rental. When you look at where we currently are with the shortage, but also the rise of um, online learning, where do you see the student accommodation um, segment as an, as, as an investment vehicle headed? So uh, I'd say we're in very interesting times. The student accommodation has been around for a long time and I, and I still feel there is a need for student accommodation. Uh, not all learning can happen online. Um, so at this moment, we've got one or two years of uncertainty where we don't know what's going to happen. And, and having the right sort of, of strategy and the, the right sort of tips, some of these tips that I might give today will actually help your student accommodation live through these next two years. Because, I mean, it's we all uncertain at the moment. But I can definitely say that student accommodation as a vehicle and as an asset class is definitely one that's going to stay. It's taken a knock now but uh, it'll come back and it will be, it, it will stay. Mm. Even with the online learning, I, I feel, I feel the online learning, um, it, it, it offers an opportunity to, to landlords. Um, because I mean, if I was a student and, and, and one of your biggest pluses was constant fast internet that I can online learn versus being at home where I might be distracted by family um, or even just myself wanting to go to the fridge too often, um, I'll go stay in rent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's definitely one of the big things that uh, a lot of landlords are going to have to, especially the smaller landlords as, as opposed to the big developers, because with the big developers, it's pretty much a given. So having fast internet in your student accommodation place now is a necessity and not a nice to have. I think there was a time when it used to be a nice to have and a lot of landlords didn't include it in their package. Um, but now with so much learning essentially happening online, you absolutely cannot not have it because part of why a student would um, you know, opt to stay in your place is that they would, as you're saying, have um, all the resources that they need in order for them to continue learning. And um, then Zach, maybe let's get to you know, the first tip that you shared with investors who are thinking about it. Because as you're saying, one of the things that absolutely picked up is there are quite a lot of student accommodation properties that are on the market um, right now, and this is across the country. So if you almost look at all the areas that are around the universities, there are quite a, there's quite a lot of accommodation you know, on the market. And with some, it's because maybe the landlords were already slightly frustrated with dealing with students, 
and maybe we're slightly on the fence, but with COVID and the effects of COVID, I probably like, you know what, let me just cut my losses. I don't really want to do student accommodation. So there definitely are a lot of buying opportunities. And so for viewers at home who are potentially looking at buying um, student accommodation places, what would that first tip be for them uh, in terms of looking at student accommodation as, a, as, a, as an investment vehicle? So one would have to look at it from their investment point in, in a holistic point of view. As you, as you pointed out, um, I myself have been shopping around and seeing plenty of student accommodations that are coming up and on the market and not selling. And, and purely because the landlords or the previous owners had transformed this property from being a house into what ends up being a prison. It looks like a prison and they want the value for it. And because they were getting a return previously, it's now priced higher, but now they can't sell. So that already gives you the first big tip in terms of when you buy the property, you've got to plan ahead. You've got to plan for 10 years time and you've got to convert your property such that it can be sellable in a time like this. Uh, I think COVID has given us the best test to say, should something like this happen again in, in, in a couple of years time or, or down the line, are you prepared? Before we weren't prepared and now we've, we've had a trial run. We've got to be prepared of how we're going to then take it after um, the investment and after COVID. So yeah. definitely we would have to yeah, convert, convert for future sales. You know, Zach, I'm, I'm actually so glad that this is the first tip because one of the big things around it is also that some of the current less, some of the current owners of these student accommodation places also transformed their properties or renovated their properties without all the um uh, without you know notifying yeah. the municipality or the bank so they actually cannot sell it never mind being overpriced i think the overpricing you can negotiate it down but even if you were to negotiate it down by 30 40 percent a bank is just not touching that property because when they look at the plans, when the moment they bring their evaluator and they see the structural changes that have been done, no financial institution um, was, was notified. Certainly the municipality wasn't notified. And so you're sitting with this house that in effect isn't compliant and you're struggling to sell it. So I think it's also one of those things um, as, a, as an owner, if you're currently an owner, that if you are going to find some of these gems do plan ahead, as Zach is saying, and don't just plan ahead for, you know, putting too much money into it. But also, if you're going to want to sell it, you might sell it to somebody, for example, who wants to get it bonded, as opposed to a cash buyer. I mean, a cash buyer wouldn't uh, think twice about this. They'd buy it and kind of look at the long-term potential yield that they might get. But somebody who's going to be going to a financial institution for the financing, something like that is going to be important. And I think that oftentimes when you are a, you know, when you've just bought your new property that you want to convert to student accommodation, you tend to not think about this. If anything, you see this three bed and you think, look, I can probably make this a six bed. Uh, this is how I can partition the rooms and whatnot uh, without thinking of all the relevant steps and checks that you need to do to make sure that uh, your house is properly compliant, especially if you're going to sell it in the future. And, and compliance is where a lot of people are actually losing the money because people forget that the bank looks at a property and thinks about how much it's going to cost to put that property back into a residential if it's in a res residential area. And if you haven't factored that in, 
uh, and you come to a, a time of crisis, you won't even be able to offload that asset fast enough. Uh, I've seen a lot of, of, of landlords who are trying to dispose of what was previously a cash flowing property and they can't dispose of it fast enough and they're finding themselves in great difficulty because of this very um, compliance issue that they, they've got. I am mm. in conversation with Uzakele Miaza, who's the founder of Bus Stop Properties. We're talking about student accommodations, sharing tips on how you can uh, get the most out of your student accommodation investment. If you're exploring going into student accommodation, um, this is certainly the episode for you. These are some of the things that you need to be watching out for before buying a student accommodation uh, place and also what you should be doing once you have it. And we're going to get to that uh, because Zach, this is something, you know, this is something that Zach um, has experienced in. For our viewers at home, I certainly want to hear from the landlords if you're currently in student accommodation, how was the 2020 period? Uh, I mean, we went into lockdown when the academic calendar had already started. Were you, did you, were you able to retain all your tenants throughout uh, 2020 or did some of them decide, look, I actually am going to cancel my lease, going to move back home. Um, and how were you able to essentially survive the rest of 2020 um, if you're in the student accommodation space? And to those of you who are considering going into it, what are some of your reasons? I mean, are you scared of the, the move to work online? Do you think we're not going to get um, tenants or are you wary of um, you know, student accommodation because you're going to have to deal with more than one tenant uh, and you're just thinking, look, this is more stress than it's worth. Do share your views down here below. I love hearing from you. We certainly want to hear some of your views when it comes to student accommodation. Now, Zach, then what would be the second tip that our viewers at home need to be uh, mindful of uh, when it comes to their student accommodation investment? So uh, I'm going to just take you back uh, a step. Um, where I wanted to start is, is because of, of where I sit now, I know a lot of doctors, lawyers, um, CEOs who stayed in student accommodations that now live in these big fancy houses, they buy student accommodation and they convert them into prisons. And, and when I say prisons, is what they, they just stack beds for maximum return. And, and that in itself becomes a, a, a lot of the problem that they're not converting for the human beings that are going to live there, they're converting for return. So when I look at what's my hot tip when I look at a student accommodation is you've got to look at the student accommodation firstly um, as a business. And I look at it in, in three levels. You've got to look at it from the business level, uh, an operational level, and then a systematic level. And I'll, and I'll start with, with from, from the first one, the business level. And that's where, where my return is made. So when I first go into my student accommodation, as we've already discussed, you make money when you buy. Uh, when you make money when you buy, you've got to take into account all sort of your all of your expenses, and then you've got to maximize your return, but ethically. Uh, I know a lot of people who would buy a place a million rand, and they can turn over 60, 70 uh, thousand rand a month from that, but they've crammed students in. Now, come time of COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm wanting to stay at res, but you're making me stay in a room with four people. I can't move. Um, there's four other people in the next room. There's four other people in the lounge. It's not a conducive environment. So you've got to look at it from that business level as well to say, how do I maximize from a business perspective? And then one of the biggest issues um, when, I, when we're still talking about this business level is people don't design for their losses. And, and what I say when I say design for your losses, November, December, January time is the time, the, the, the time where, where your income can be low. Uh, you hear a lot of people say, yes, we can let it out for vacation and holiday. May 
acres, but they in a place that is so compartment and it doesn't have any recreational space. Um, you don't feel like you're on holiday yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you say touring groups and churches, and, and no one really wants to stay in that accommodation. So if you design an accommodation and your student accommodation such that you can cater for more than just your students thereafter, uh, and, and you can do it very simply, whereby you can convert the, the, the space um, by moving beds, having a storage area, obviously calculating your costs to ensure that you, you, you're you not making a, a loss by putting your stuff in storage. But it's it's something that has to be looked at holistically. So the business level, when it comes to how do I invest, you have to look at it from the business level and break it down from the business level first. So we are we are taking your questions and comments on student accommodation. Uh, you know, we're looking at where student accommodation is, but more than anything, we're looking at tips for you to maximize your student accommodation investments. If you're considering going into student accommodation, these are some of the things that you want to be aware of and also plan for, because I think often a lot of people will talk about how with student student accommodation, you're able to get double digit yield and they'll tell you how much money that they're able to make, but you really want to get the, the a very holistic picture of how student accommodation works and also how you can go about maximizing your returns in an ethical way. And I love that you bring that up, Zakele, because oftentimes I've seen a lot of landlords and even students, you know, we, uh, they openly speak about this, how you go to a place, rent is X amount. And when you go in there, the room is so small. Um, you know, there aren't actually enough bathrooms for the number of people who are expected to, to stay there. So one tip that I'll definitely slide in there um, when it comes to, we'll, we'll say, the ethical way of making money is that even beyond the ethics, you need to look at what the minimum requirements essentially are for the student accommodation. I know that the Department of Higher Education actually has what the prescribed um, I'll say specs for student accommodation places typically are. And that should give you a very good guideline of um, what is expected. And if you're going to want to cut corners in terms of those guidelines, then you essentially, you know, working on the unethical side where you want to squash five students, for example, into uh, one big bedroom, whereas that probably that isn't part of the, um, the, pres- the prescribed rules. So I think, Definitely, as a, as a as somebody who wants to be a landlord, go to the department's website. They really do have it on there. And it gives you a really good outline of if X number of students are going to live in a place, these are how many bathrooms ought to be there, uh, and those kinds of things. Because, for example, you can't have 15 students staying in a house and there's one bathroom. Um, that, that simply isn't something that, you know, should fly. And so that's one of the things I think you need to be aware of and not just think, I'm going to put in as many students. I know they're going to be desperate and therefore their parents are going to pay that money. I think we need to definitely move beyond um, that kind of thinking. I see we've got a comment from Usami Mahlatze on Facebook uh, who said, I made sure when I, when I renovate my house, it can also be turned into student and normal tenants as I had to think about the future, um, which is so important. It's what Zach was saying, that you, you also don't want to change the specs of the house so much that the only thing that's possible is for it to be essentially like a dorm. And let's say you've taken one fairly decent sized bedroom and you cut it in half and not even with, um, like you actually put bricks instead of, you know, a nice partitioned wall. 
um, and you like go and build it up, it's going to make it difficult to try and change that into, you know, normal residential living because no family wants to stay in those small res-like rooms, you know, because it really is just for students. It's a dormitory. So you really need to be um, aware of that. So Zach, then what's the next tip that we need to be able to uh, be aware of if we want to maximize our student accommodation investment? All right. So, so now when we're looking at these tips, we're looking at the operational level. Yeah. Um, because this is where you make your money. It's where your money can be lost. Uh, and we touched on, on one of the, the topics already was compliance. Uh, and compliance in terms of the rules, you, you touched on that there are national rules that are out there, but each and every university actually has a set of guidelines. Um, if you've gone through the, the, the national rules uh, and you've actually measured out the space that they say a student should live in, you'll realize that it actually is very, very tight. Um, and that's why I go on the, on the ethical side to say, look, I wouldn't live in seven square meters. Um, I'd wanna make it slightly bigger. So, so on the operational level, compliance makes you money because a compliance student accommodation, even the university could assist you in times when, um, when students are coming back and they need a place to stay, they would much rather refer to a compliant uh, residence than, than one that is just a, a private residence that's trying to get a return, maximum return. So compliance on the operational level. Um, I'd also then say on, on a, a good tip is don't be cheap in high usage areas. Now, and when I say don't be cheap in high usage areas, it, it goes down to the maintenance of the property. Uh, you're gonna have students, they're up and down. Um, it's not their property. So the way a person would handle the property is very, very different. So you don't wanna be cheap on, on things that move, things that rotate, doors, hinges, uh, all those sorts of, 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 of appliances, because there'll be, if you're having appliances, there'll be lots of cooking um, in, your, in your geysers and how your installation is done. And, and also just segregating the place electrically so you can fault find. Um, so those are the things that don't be cheap in high usage areas because it ends up costing you a lot uh, in the long run and on, in maintenance. Um, it also then allows you, when you've done it properly, uh, to segregate the area whereby maybe half your accommodation is being used. You can shut down the other half of, of, uh, of your residence and save, uh, save money. So those, those sort of, uh, of tips one, one, one wants to look at. Uh, the other tip is stay on top of your maintenance. Um, if, if you've ever gone through and shopped and been in a complex, a complex's value is given by how well-maintained that complex is. Before you've even gone into the property, you, you see how well the gardens are kept. You see if the security, if there's a security guard, if there's a gate, if it's operational. Um, and then only when you get in and you see how, how, how pretty the place is, would you be willing to pay more? So when I say stay on top of your maintenance, you keep your, your student accommodation in tip-top condition, um, you will have students consistently you will also be able to demand a higher price and your higher price is based on how well you're keeping your accommodation. Mm -hmm. So I think that that'd be a very, very good one. And, and where to learn on how to keep your accommodation? Well, you've got options. One is outsource it uh, where you would pay someone who knows. Option two, um, I'm sure you've, you've had uh, on, on the private property podcast, uh, uh, Marissa Robas or people from the Property Academy, um, where they talk about maintenance and they had a book, uh, The Proud Homeowner. And, and I stand by that book because it taught me how to 
look at a property from a maintenance point of view. So you know exactly how to stay on top of your property and not to lose money through maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then the last one is, is make friends with builders. <laughs> uh, it will save you. Uh, it will save you a lot of a lot, a lot of money. Like I'm, I'm catching myself. Like that. That's that's trust fire to me. I'm gonna catch myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've you've got to. You've got to make friends with builders, uh, and and yourself understand what goes into building. Um. When you say make friends with builders, it doesn't mean be naive. You can meet very friendly builders who will still rip you off. So make friends so that you can get the right advice. Make friends such that you know that the relationship you're in is a long-term relationship. You're not looking for someone who's going to come into your property and do one sort of fix and leave. And you get someone different every time. Because if you get someone different every time, they will always find something else that's wrong. So you make friends with your builders, a good maintenance person, and you stick by them and you understand the maintenance that's, that should be done, record your maintenance and then analyze how much you're spending on your maintenance. Mm -hmm. And I think from an operational level, that's the, the tips that one would look at. Mm. And, and you know, I think Zakele, that's probably one of the areas that we tend to underestimate quite a lot because you, you don't know until you're in it um, just how much maintenance is going to be needed. And even when, for example, you know, you got the place, there wasn't much that you needed to change. Perhaps you, before you got your set of students, um, you're able to do those few renovations so that new students can go in. The moment they do, then you realize um, how many things can potentially go wrong um, and how regularly they can easily, you know, reach out to you if you're a DIY landlord or the agent, if you're working with an agent. So it really is one of those things when it comes to maintenance, you could be spending a lot or you can be, you know, spending a, a good amount of money, depending, as we're saying, on how you're also doing your maintenance, uh, whether you're going to be a cheapskate throughout and, you know, keep putting, uh, you know, cheap doors, cheap hinges, uh, maybe not even put, you know, now we're putting LED lights. They're slightly more pricier, but they last longer. With students, they'll keep lights on all the time they won't be mindful of you know switching them off so are you going to to rather pay a little extra in order to make sure that you get better quality um you know appliances as we're even saying because i think it's also one of those things I've, and i've seen it with a lot of new landlords who are in student accommodation when you start furnishing the place you don't go you go for the cheapest kind of furniture so you're able to get those students in whether it's you know the cheapest second or third hand fridge microwave the beds and whatever the case is and it's the stuff that just breaks you know two months into a student being in the bed is broken and you essentially as a landlord are going to uh, need to deal with that uh, because you didn't put in the right amount of money to buy durable furniture or appliances so it's definitely one of those things you need to be very aware of because it can creep into your bottom line quite quite heavily because if, if you're able to then check it you know let's say the first year and then the second year and you realize how many of these small things you keep just you know buying one by one by one um, you end up spending such a huge amount of money so it definitely is one of those things that you want to be aware of now Zach I think 
before you know, before we start wrapping up, one of the things then I, I, I'd want uh, us to also explore is for landlords who have been in student accommodation, perhaps they haven't been running it as well as you've you know outlined this evening because you've given us great tips for uh, almost from the top to going down and how you also operationalize um, essentially your student accommodation business. How do they get back on track? Because I'm sure some of them, you know, last year we can say so many things happened, but now it's, it's a new year. There are students who are going to look for a place. And let's make the assumption that they will get the, the students. But what can they do between now and when the academic calendar almost officially opens? I know it's opening slightly later than normal this year to almost get back online so that their student accommodation investment um, still gives them good yield and they don't find themselves losing money um, in the months to come. Right, so that's, that's perfect. That brings me down to the third sort of point, which is the systematic level. Now, you, you're looking at, at people who've had student accommodations and even those that are, are just starting out. You've got to look at your student accommodation as a system. So the systematic level is going to enable you to have time. Why I say it enables you to have time you, systems will help you reduce your admin and uh, it will help you standardize. It will help you do things repeatedly without your presence uh, or intervention being required. Mm -hmm. So a landlord would want to look at what sort of systems are out there that can, uh, can assist me in my student accommodation and, and systems can go from, I need to acquire new quality students. How do I find new quality students? Do I need to go physically and put up adverts at the university? Do I need to, to go put my adverts on private property? How do I get students? So if you've systemized the way that you're pulling in your students and how you're attracting your students, they come to you. You don't do the work, they will come to you. You need to also systemize for, for, for negligence. And when I say systemize for negligence, Again, students will do things like leaving lights on, uh, leaving water running, uh, taps keep breaking. They don't report breakages. Now, if you haven't systemized for negligence, a system that will enable you to know when there's leaks, to know when, when there's an overusage of, of energy, it's, it's going to be very difficult to save money. So if you do the investment to systemize and have systems that can monitor your water usage, monitor how much uh, how the light usage uh, and, and those sort of things, that will help you uh, save money and be ready when the students come back. You also then systemize uh, uh, from the operational level of once your students have come in um, and they're living there. How do, they, how do they interact with you as landlord? Because you could have a, a case whereby students are forever contacting the landlord and you don't see that time where you're always dealing with issues. Now, how do you resolve issues that are, are happening on campus systematically? That's where uh, uh, having and in, investing in the right system between you and your management company, or if you are self-managed, how you react to, to a, a student's call. So systemizing, systemizing your, your current student accommodation would be your best move now as a, as a current landlord in order to understand where to make money. Because if you don't know, you don't know. So if you don't record it, you don't know. So you've got to systemize your place uh, to, to maximize its return. And we often don't do that, right, Zach? We don't usually put in the right systems, especially when it comes to uh, a lot of our property investments. I think a lot of 
landlords to do it themselves. Don't get into the habit of getting a system early on and and tweaking it along the way until you find um, that sweet spot where everything really does almost run that clockwork, whether it is, um, whether let's say you use tools like the TPN rent book um, or other tools that you're going to be using if you're doing everything yourself. And you know that on this day of the month, this is when you're reporting X things and you know the emails get sent out automatically. So you're also not having to manually do certain things. So I think it is one of those things um, you want to get into the habit of as somebody who is in property, regardless of whether it's student accommodation or, you know, any other kind of property that put in the right systems um, early on. I know I'm guilty of this. That's why I'm talking about it. Uh, I'm very guilty of it. Uh, and so I know I need to change my ways uh, because the, the way I sometimes do it is not particularly sustainable. Um, and I think the busier you get, the, the easier it is for certain things to then slip through the cracks, which is yes. the last thing you want, right? So when you put in those systems, yes, like you're going to say, I know things are slip through, slipping through the cracks. What did you want to add there? Yes, I was going to say that um, with systemizing, it doesn't have to be electronic. Um, you can start off a system being very, very manual. Um, you can't, I'm just going to move my camera here. If you can see, sorry. This is just on my, on all light fixtures in your house. You can, it's just a little note that you have to inform students uh, and users um, on, uh, on switching off the lights. I have similar sort of, of notices around all water points, um, around any energy using points. I have something to make people aware of energy usages and savings. So you can start off very simply by making it manual and then gradually build up. When your students are used to seeing the fact that they need to switch lights off, it'll be easy for them to, to get a pop-up message on their phone uh, that reminds them of things like you left uh, the lights on in your room, uh, make sure you switch it off next time. Mm-mm-mm. And I guess this is one of those things where you also don't want to overwhelm you, yourself as a, you know, as a landlord, especially when you're starting off. So you can do the things manually so that you also get used to them. And I know that there are all kinds of cool apps and tools that are now on the market that are definitely able to um, use those at some point. And that doesn't need to be the starting point, right? Because some, with some of them, there's probably going to be a monthly or an annual cost involved. So you also don't want to start off your, um, your journey with incurring all kinds of costs without actually having a fundamental understanding of all the things behind um, running your student accommodation. So it is sometimes probably better to, to, to start, we'll say, in grade one and move yourself up to finally being in matric where, I mean, the, I, I know, for example, Zach, and I know you also are with it, um, once you've been able to make sure that even your whole house um, is, is as smart as possible, and this is a student accommodation place, you're able to see the water usage at any given point um, on the app, you're able to monitor the electricity usage, even when it's prepaid, because you still want to, um, you know, tell your students that, hey, you're actually consuming a lot of, you know, electricity. So as much as I know you're paying, you're paying, you're buying it, um, you don't want them to have to spend, let's say, 1,200 on electricity. So all these little things, um, you're able as a landlord to monitor them online. You get messages if, for example, uh, somebody tries to bridge electricity because you sometimes do get um, those instances. So all those little 
will say nice to have tools that as you gradually move up, you're definitely going to want to invest in. You don't need to start there. So I think as a, as a landlord, also don't feel as though that needs to be the starting point. It doesn't. Uh, you still have time to get yourself there and to also budget your way there, right? Because I think that, and, and this is something that we, we didn't touch on as much this evening is around the budgeting when it comes to student accommodation. Because I think oftentimes people, a lot of landlords, you're counting on that X amount of money coming in. You know the bond is this amount, your rates and taxes is this amount. And they typically will then, you know, use all of the money and, you know, almost transfer it into their personal account. Some of the landlords, I know the rent is going straight into their personal account. So you're not even, as you're, as you're advising us, you're not even running it like a business where you say, this is how much money. I mean, if you want to get a certain portion, it must be a standardized amount every month. Do you have an emergency fund? Because if there's a maintenance issue that comes up, you need to have the funds for it. So like, I think that's definitely one of the things that we, we tend to struggle with. I can already foresee we're going to bring you back for student accommodation because it is one of those topics that a lot of people want to explore. Um, mm -hmm. And even though we're in the middle of you know, COVID and there are many reservations around going into student accommodation, people still want to go into it because they see um, the potential that it, it has and yet they just don't quite know how to go about, um, you know, going in and whether even things like pricing and should you be running it yourself? Should you rather get somebody else to run it? Um, but before I let you go, Zach, any final tip for viewers at home when it comes to, you know, their student accommodation investment? A hundred percent. I would say that they must remember that it's an investment um, and an investment it takes time to mature. It, it needs to be nurtured uh, and also it needs to be understood. So um, if, if they're going into the student accommodation class uh, of investment, they must understand that there, there is a lot to be made. There's a lot to be learned, but money can be lost. Uh, it still is a risky class, but a very profitable class mm. when done correctly. Mm. We've got a question here from Facebook. It's coming from Alan Mayer who asks, what's the average cost for student rental? Um, rentals vary based on your, your areas. Like Cape Town is slightly more expensive uh, than Joburg, Durban. So you can go anywhere if it's on Nefsis, 3.5, 3.2, depending on where you are up to in Cape Town. I think it goes up to about 4K uh, per bed. Mm -hmm. yeah, on, it's on private, yeah, on private accommodations, um, I, I mean, if you look at places like in Pretoria, you can find accommodations for five, six thousand rand because of the demand and the quality of the accommodation. So it really is depending on geographically where you are and what the demand is. And Zach, that's a great place to leave it in. And I think one of the things um, you know, from that question is also in the event where you want to go into student accommodation, track the area that you're going into because there isn't, you know, you're not going to try and use uh, let's say average out all the different provinces because the markets are very different um, across the various provinces and across the various cities. So even a price point, for example, in Joburg versus in Pretoria uh, is still very different. And so you really want to understand the specific sort of city where you want to do student accommodation and also which students you're catering for. So if you're looking at a Pretoria, you've got your UP, you've got your TUT, you've got your UNISA, 
which student demographic is it? Because you also tend to find those that um, depending on which university you want to primarily get students from, the price point will also slightly um, you know, change. So really do make sure that you do your research um, it's very easy to get the, you know, rental data for student accommodation. A lot of the guys put the price up. So you also want to make sure that you're pegging yours um, at the right level because there is quite a lot of private accommodation that's typically available. Uh, obviously, the ones that are very close to campus tend to go, um, tend to be tend to be filled quicker than the ones that are slightly um, away from campus. So you really want to make sure that you get the, the right price point. Um, that's not just going to cover costs. You obviously want to make your margins and, and be able to budget um, efficiently as much as possible. But Zach, we are going to leave it there this evening. You want to add one last thing? Oh, yes. I was going to say when you were talking about your, your price point, uh, I think it's also important for people to remember to actually pay themselves um, because it is an investment that will mature. So if you pay yourself, you'll skip the mistake of taking all of your money and putting it into your personal account. Yeah. So people just need to remember that. Pay yourself a salary. No one runs a business by taking all of the income and spending it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I actually nearly said it depends which business you're running because I know we've seen those kinds of art stories um, in South Africa. But Zach, we're going to leave it there this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Zama. It was great being on. And that is Uzakele Miaza, who's the founder of Bus Stop Properties. We're exploring student accommodation as an investment. And we're certainly quite excited. We're going to keep the conversation going on social media. I'm very I'm looking forward to seeing the comments that you, and some of the questions that you have down here below. Of course, you can catch me on my own social media at Zamantunga underscore K. And that's going to be a wrap from myself and the rest of the team this evening. We're back on your screens tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. Until then, hoping you're staying home and staying safe. about five years ago. Fairy Green is a really safe place and the people are really kind. Some of my friends live really close by in suburbs like Equestria and Olympus. In the morning I will wake up, make myself a cup of coffee, go for a jog in the Fairy Glen Nature Reserve or even just in the neighbourhood. It's safe, quiet and the environment is really nice. I love Fairy Glen because I'm near the city but I'm not in the city.
to go to Pretoria Country Club to clear my mind um, on my own, to relax and just to enjoy a round of golf. In Pretoria East we really have nice uh, places to visit like Midland Mall and Brooklyn Mall that is really close by. There are also a lot of top schools in the area like Pretoria Boys High and Yoshko Menlo Park. One of the most beautiful places to see the whole of Pretoria is the Fort Capricorn Viewpoint. And that's my neighborhood.